Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 348 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed whether the current approach to legal tech conferences and CLEs is actually a good way for people to learn about tech and tech skills or whether there might be some better ways. So what are the desired outcomes from these conferences and do today's approaches achieve them? In this episode, we have another very special guest in our Fresh Voices series. In Fresh Voices, we want to showcase different and compelling perspectives on legal tech and more. We have another fabulous guest. And okay, Tom, I'm going to admit it that I am really enjoying this interview series, even if it was your idea to do more interviews. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? All right, everybody, uh, and Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we are thrilled to continue our Fresh Voices on Legal Tech interview series. Can't call it new anymore. It's been going on for a while with Kristen Hodgins, who is, among other things, a consultant with Accenture Legislative Technologies and a strong voice on social media and uh, on the legal technology space. Uh, we want our Fresh Voices series to not only introduce you to terrific leaders in the legal tech space, but also provide you with their perspective on the things that you ought to be paying attention to. We're getting a lot of great perspective from the people we've been talking to. We're really happy with the people uh, that have been showing up for this podcast. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, and observation that you can start using the second that this podcast is over. But first up, we are so pleased to welcome Kristen Hodgins to our Fresh Voices series. Kristen, welcome to the Kennedy Mall Report. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Before we get started, um, can you tell the audience a little more about yourself, what your role as a consultant at Accenture Legislative Technologies encompasses and kind of what you want our audience to know about what you do every day? Sure. So I think we'll dive more deeply into my background and career path a little bit later. But broadly, um, I've made a career out of leading enterprise transformation projects in the legal space, uh, largely focusing on technology and end users. Um, I've been an enterprise buyer and implementer of technology most of my career, um, but most recently I've shifted to the uh, vendor and product side of legal tech with Accenture. Uh, so Accenture is a small U.S.-based legal tech company. Uh, we're about 20 years old, and the reason you probably haven't heard of our company is because we operate in the rulemaking space. So unlike most other legal tech companies, um, our primary clients aren't law firms and legal departments. They're uh, national, uh, state, and provincial legislatures. So we primarily work with those government entities uh, to modernize rulemaking, which involves developing technology for legislative drafting, uh, using modern XML standards, publishing legislation in a way that's accessible to a variety of users, and also automating things like the codification process. We're also starting to venture into the rules as code space, which is where uh, legislation is not only machine readable, but machine executable. 
So in my role with Accenture, um, I primarily work with those government entities to understand their business, their needs, and how our products and services can help solve their uh, modernization dreams, I suppose, uh, and working with our internal development teams to either add to our core product roadmap or develop custom applications for them. Great. Kristen, as people know, I and, and I think you do as well, I sometimes get a little frustrated with how difficult it still is to explain technology, whether it's old technology or new technology, and its benefits to those in the legal profession. I think you're great at this, especially with your, your background um, in on the government side and in what I would broadly call legal operations to some extent, probably before it was actually called that, and, and practical impacts uh, of the technology. I also think you have this great direct approach. And I, I noticed on LinkedIn this morning, you had posted something about uh, somebody had talked about burnout and they were talking about like strategies to deal with burnout. And you made this comment that, uh, you know, if you're in a burnout situation, like you're, <laughs> the strategy is not how like how to deal with it. It's like how to get out of it. And I think that's that's just such a, a fresh and direct approach. But uh, would you talk about your your typical approach to communicating with lawyers and others in the legal profession about technology? Sure. So I think my approach depends largely on the context and, and who I'm talking to. Um, if I'm talking internally with an organization and trying to get uh, my lawyers on board with technology, lawyers really need to have confidence in knowing that you understand their business. Um, there needs to be an element of trust there, and you need to demonstrate that you um, actually understand their pain points and also their uh, motivations and fears for technology. Uh, especially with lawyers in law firms, when you talk about bringing a new technology on board, the first thing they're going to say is, I'm too busy, I don't have time for that. Because Every hour a lawyer spends learning new technology is an hour that they're taking away from their billable work. So it just means that they need to spend an extra hour this evening or this weekend to make up for that time. So you really need to talk about it in terms of how it will help them. And depends on what the technology is, but um, the easiest sell is technology that helps them with uh, non-billable or administrative tasks, right? That's the time they really, really want to save. Um, if you're talking about an in-house or legal operations department, um, then you can talk about more about the value proposition, uh, efficiency, the cost. Um, you really need to explain how it's going to save time or money to an organization. So let's take that a step further um, and, and kind of ask that how's it going so far question. So one of the topics that we talk a lot about here is technology competence. We, I say this probably at all the, on all of our episodes, I describe me and, and Dennis as the grumpy old men on the yard who are very skeptical about lawyer, te lawyer tech competence, that it's not really going anywhere, that nobody's really paying attention to it. Um, you're giving opportunities to teach people about technology, whether they're taking that and actually learning is a different question. Where you're sitting or standing, what, what, what is your kind of view of the current state of technology competence among lawyers? My view is that we're not very good at assessing lawyer competence generally. Uh, most jurisdictions don't have any meaningful way to assess it after um, a lawyer passes the bar, and even then there's some questions about whether that's a useful measure. So it seems bizarre to me that we are focusing on uh, technology out of all of the areas of comp uh, competence. <laughs> you know, we can talk about technology adeptness, um, and that's a different conversation. And to me, 
you know, technology is just a tool to facilitate a, a business process. So I think technology adeptness is largely a business decision. Law firms can decide what skills they want their lawyers to have and, you know, what role technology plays and whether they have other staff at the law firm who look after most of that technology and, and use that technology. And likewise, clients can decide what technology they want their lawyers to use. So, yeah, I'm not terribly concerned about technology competence in the broad sense. I think that's a great idea. I think making, you know, having the law firms set the standards for what they want their lawyers to do or maybe the guidelines for for how that is. Do you see law firms doing that? Because I don't know that I see that that's a, a thing right now. It should be a thing. But are you seeing that anywhere out in the wild? Not in terms of guidelines necessarily, but certainly when I worked at a law firm, there was certain technologies that all lawyers had to learn, like their document management system, uh, the knowledge management system, and their billing system. Like Those are pretty basic technologies. So I think it's really a business decision from the leadership of a law firm to say, you know what, in order to successfully practice here, you need to be able to do A, B, and C. And then, you know, anything beyond that, I think, is probably up to the practice area. You know, it's, it's interesting that you talk about technology adeptness as opposed to competence. And I've, I've been using the term technology literacy, but I, I think you're right that, you know, what you're, what you're talking about is that technology is a tool that sits in this much bigger environment and that it's easy to overfocus on the technology piece of it. I do want to go to uh, some back into your career path, and, and that's one of the things that Tom and I have found that's been truly interesting in this interview series is just learning about the different career paths that people have taken. So I think these days there's so much happening in legal operations and the law-related sort of tech, both technology and business process spaces that I've started something I'm calling the New Legal Careers Platform at the Michigan State University Center for Law, Technology, and Innovation. Could you tell us more about your own career path and the kinds of things you've done and, and maybe what made you move from, from one direction to another? Sure. I'd probably describe it as less of a career path and more of a meandering wander through a forest. Um, but yeah, I have a, an undergraduate degree in law and I uh, worked with a lawyer during my undergraduate degree and realized that I love uh, law as a subject and the legal industry, but I really didn't want to practice law. So I didn't go to law school. And at that time, there wasn't a whole lot else to do but become a law librarian. So I decided to do that and went to school uh, to get my master's degree in information science. Um, so I started my career as a law librarian with a large regional firm in Vancouver. And then I moved over to government. Um, I was a law librarian with the government of British Columbia for a while. And while I was there, I became more interested in, in knowledge management and cross-government initiatives. So I moved into the director of legal research services role there. I did that role for a couple of years. At the time, the BC government was looking to reorganize their in-house legal department of 300 lawyers and 300 staff. They wanted to adopt a client-centered service delivery model and also institute a legal operations function. Uh, and that was the first time uh, any government entity, at least in Canada, had attempted that. So I was tasked with managing that project. Um, so I managed that for 
a few years. And during that time, I became a lot more interested in service design, um, organizational behavior, and kind of the psychology behind change management and innovation, uh, very much focusing on the people side of innovation. That led to an innovation role with a law firm in Toronto. Uh, Unfortunately, I got that job offer, I think, March 10th, 2020, so just before the pandemic. I worked remotely uh, for them for about a year, but uh, realized I didn't end up wanting to move to Toronto. So conveniently at the time, the BC government was hiring for their first director of legal operations. So I uh, did that for about a year and a half, um, had a short stint with the courts in an operations role, and then started to think about where I wanted to go with my career and also what skills I was missing. And I had lots of experience buying technology and implementing it, you know, working as a librarian, working with legal research tools, but I didn't have any experience as a vendor. I didn't have any experience building technology. So I really wanted to get that foundation under my belt. So that led to my current role as a consultant with Accenture. Let's talk about a different kind of technology for a minute. We uh, we love to ask our guests about collaboration tools. That is one of our favorite topics. And uh, collaboration is something that uh, most people can't do their day job without. So we wanted to get an understanding kind of from you, get your thoughts on what are your favorite ways to collaborate, whether it's with legislative groups or with your internal colleagues or anybody. Um, yeah, I think my favorite way is using a variety of different ways. I'm learning that lots of different people like to work in different ways and communicate in different ways. Some of us work better asynchronously. So it's not using one particular tool. For instance, we use Slack for a lot of our internal communication, but it's finding that variety so that you can give everyone uh, the best opportunity uh, for them to collaborate. But with all of the technology tools available, I think nothing um, can replace the power of, you know, an in-person conference, having those discussions at the end of the day. A lot of the collaboration tools focus very much on formal and deliberate communication. But, you know, one of the things we do miss working remotely and, um, you know, having remote conferences is that kind of uh, serendipitous interaction that you have to be very deliberate about uh, remotely. But if you're in person at a conference, you'll just run into someone and they might say something that sparks something in you. And that um, would have never happened if you were trying to communicate online or collaborate with them online. Yep. You hear that, Dennis? In person, in person. We had this conversation on our last episode. Um, We have a lot more questions for Kristen. uh, But uh, before we do that, before we get to those questions, let's take a break for a quick word from our sponsors. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that, and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures— all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. 
Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. And we are back with uh, Kristen Hodgins uh, at Accenture. Kristen, you have many interests, and I know that one of them is access to justice. And what you're doing at Accenture to me is is a great example of access to justice, maybe in a way that not that many people think about. But I, I just want to know if you talk a little bit about what is happening right now in, in justice technology that excites you or seems to have the most potential, and how might some of those technologies actually impact legal education as well as law practice? And uh, and maybe this is a softball, but should U.S. lawyers be looking at what is happening in Canada or vice versa? I'll answer the first part, or sorry, the last question first. The problem with uh, Canada and the U.S. is we're both very large countries um, with lots of provinces and states, so it's hard to make an overarching statement that, yes, lawyers in the U.S. should look to Canada or vice versa. Um, I think Canada in general is doing some things pretty well, particularly um, with the executive branch of government. There's a lot of good forward-thinking policy around access to justice and legal technology that's coming out. For instance, the government of Canada just released um, AI standards for use in government earlier this week. Um, so that was a pretty big deal. Um, you know, BC government has been very innovative on the uh, civil resolution tribunal front using online courts and meeting people where they are. However, in general, I think the courts in the states are far uh, more ahead of Canada in terms of looking at things like legal innovation, legal sandboxes. Um, I think the relationship between U.S. Uh, regulators or, sorry, uh, lawyer regulators in the states and courts is much tighter than it is in Canada. So well, in Canada, our you know Law Society of Alberta might be looking at um, a legal sandbox for alternative legal services. Uh, the courts might not be involved in that decision at all. Um, so I think that's something that we could certainly take from the U.S. is having a, a much more collaborative uh, working relationship between the regulators and different branches of government. All right. It is time for the obligatory Chat GPT question of the episode. The reason why I like including this is with it with our guests is is that we're getting different answers from everybody, and I think that's I think that's useful for the listeners to hear. So if you ever turn on a a, a television or read a blog post or anything, um, you are it is impossible to avoid artificial intelligence tools like Chat GPT. I'm curious. What roles are you starting to see at play? Let's maybe start specifically in kind of the lawmaking, rulemaking area first and see if that's if, what role it's playing there. And then if you want to extend it broader out into the legal technology field, uh, I'd like to see where that's headed to. Sure. So legislatures are actually a really good um, testing ground for AI. Uh, in part because our data is so structured and also we have so many checks and balances in place that you can't really get bad data out of AI because there are so many humans that review legislation, for instance. One of the areas that we're using right now is in speech recognition uh, for transcription of uh, legislative debates. So 
Previously, you would have um, Hansard transcriptionists who would be listening to recordings of the debates and literally typing you know, every word by hand. Um, but now, because of AI, they can uh, automate that and automate the transcription. And then you just have someone who does quality control. So there's lots of opportunities uh, for legislation. But some of the opportunities, they're uh, automation, but they aren't specifically uh, artificial intelligence, which might be uh, a meaningless distinction, but um, I think is an important one. I think more broadly in the legal industry, I would say I see the most applicability in the business cases that need it the least. I primarily see this with things like predictive analytics in large law firms that do a lot of high-volume transactional practices, um, high-volume litigation, uh, insurance defense. One of the areas that current legal tech tools fall short is in quantums or uh, quantum of damages. You would say, well, actually, that information is really readily available. It's always in court decisions. And you are absolutely right. It is. But as we know, most litigation isn't decided by a court. It's decided by settlements. And so uh, these law firms are sitting on massive treasure troves of their own data that, uh, to date, they haven't been able to make good use of. And so I think some of these uh, AI tools will really help them develop analytics and make them allow them to make more informed uh, decisions about how to proceed with a certain uh, issue. I'm less optimistic about the use of AI in terms of access to justice. I think it's actually going to increase inequality and increase the gap between those who can't access justice and those who can't. Wait, follow up. Say more. Explain what you mean, I guess. Sure. So I want to make a distinction between access to legal services and access to justice. Oftentimes when we talk about access to justice, what we really mean is access to legal services. Uh, for example, I am a small business owner and I want to incorporate and draft bylaws. They need legal services for that. That's not a justice issue. That's a legal services issue. And those types of problems are... I think, ripe for innovation and where AI can play a big role. But access to justice, access to justice isn't a market problem. It's not a supply and demand problem. And so trying to apply market solutions to something that is fundamentally a structural problem isn't going to work. The other problem with access to justice, at least for individuals, is most issues that everyday people have involve some interaction with the state, right? Whether it's a court or a regulatory body or an administrative body. At some point, you have to pass that membrane and into government. And a company can make all of the automation tools they want to, but the second something passes to government, they have no control over that. So to me, you know, access to justice is much more of a public policy issue than something that AI can solve for. You know, it's interesting. I sometimes think of it as that, you know, a lot of, especially the, the access to, to government services, to me, feels more like an API problem. You know, so you'd like to have other things connect seamlessly to to the government, but you're putting, you have the, the API, unfortunately, has to come from the government, which in many places is the, the least likely place uh, you're, to see that initiative. And, and I think that that is really a fundamental systems problem that we're going to, to have to, to deal with. So I've been writing a, a column today, and it's about uh, how to upskill, reskill, and new skill your innovation knowledge. So I've been thinking about how we learn new things, and that was part of the our 
our last podcast, but how do you personally learn new technologies and and stay up to date with current developments? I mean, I listen to this podcast, obviously. <laughs> I think, again, it's a variety. It's, it's talking to people as much as I hate to say it. Uh, nowadays, it's being engaged on LinkedIn. Um, there's a lot of really good, solid information on there, not just from vendors, but from people who are posting about new technologies and their experiences. You know, it's going to conferences. It's just being curious and wondering, oh, what happens if I do this? Or, oh, let me Google that and search for something. Sometimes it's just a very simple matter of having that curiosity and, and wondering where it goes. All right. Here's another standard question we have, and it's and it's also because we tend to run to the pessimistic about where lawyers are and, and where technology is. So we look for rays of sunshine from our guests. And so we want to ask, what for the future gives you optimism? Where, where do you see that legal technology is going that gives you optimism that, uh, that we're going to succeed, that lawyers will succeed, that things will improve in, in measurable ways because of technology? I think the biggest thing is the sheer number of people in this industry who are either working in legal technology now or who are interested in it. Um, it's not just a niche field anymore. Almost any lawyer or any paralegal today, um, they have thoughts about legal technology and they have thoughts about how legal tech can probably improve their practice areas. So it's no longer niche. And I think we're moving away from the innovation as theater that we probably saw, you know, five or 10 years ago. And people are actually sitting down and doing the really hard work of designing for tricky problems and implementing those solutions. I think the funding that's available now from VC and elsewhere, they're now looking a little closer than they used to. And some people might say that's a bad thing, but I think that's really good because I think the quality of legal tech companies and products that are coming on the market now um, is much higher than it was even three years ago um, in the, the height of the, the VC funding frenzy. All right. We still have many more questions for Kristen, but uh, before we get to them, we're going to take another break for a quick word from our sponsors. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy. And I'm Tom Mile. And we are joined by our special guest, Kristen Hodgins uh, at Accenture. Uh, we've got time for just a few more questions. We'll start with our best advice question. We like this question because we're getting lots of good advice uh, from our guests out of this. And so the question is pretty simple. What's the best advice either that you've been given by someone uh, as you've made your way through your career or the best advice you might have for our listeners or both? The best advice I have is quite simple, and it doesn't matter whether you're a vendor or a buyer of legal technology or just a user. Um, it always comes back to asking yourself, what is the problem we are trying to solve? Perfect. I love that. I was also, I was thinking what you were talking about innovation as theater, and I, I think I'm going to start to use AI as theater because um, I think it it's, applies in a lot of cases these days as, as well. 
So my question is, we know a lot of people, but you know even more, and we're trying to find more and more fresh voices uh, uh, in legal tech. And so who are the fresh voices that you use and you might single out and uh, like to see as part of our Fresh Voices series? Yeah, so someone I'd like to highlight is Amy Conroy. She's a data scientist with Mishkondorea in the UK. Um, she's an ABA Women of Legal Tech awardee for 2023. She has a law degree and a master's degree in information science. And a lot of the work she's doing at Mishkon is quite innovative. And also, I think, bringing a lot of um, academic rigor and frameworks that have been sorely lacking in the artificial intelligence space. Yeah, it's a great suggestion. I saw her yesterday on the Women of Legal Tech Summit, and yeah, she's definitely on my list. We want to thank Kristen Hodgins for being our guest on the podcast. Uh, Kristen, let us know uh, if our, if the listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about you. Where's the best place to find you? For better or worse, I'm still on Twitter or X, so just at Kristen Hodgins or on LinkedIn is probably the best place. So thank you so much, Kristen. You're a fantastic guest. Great information. Great advice. I mean, I, I think that, you know, look to the problem to be solved is, uh, I sometimes call jobs to be done, is, is, is so important and, and often overlooked. So now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Kristen, take it away. So I have two books to recommend. We spend a lot of time thinking about technology and not always a lot of time thinking about design. So I would recommend uh, two oldies, but goodies. The first is uh, Design of Everyday Things. And the second is This is Service Design Doing. Two great books. I highly recommend everyone in the legal tech space to read them. I am going to go to an oldie but a goodie theme for my parting shot. Guess what? Speakers. I'm going to talk about speakers. I am especially excited that uh, my favorite speaker manufacturer, which is Ultimate Ears, uh, they have uh, a new speaker called the Epic Boom that's available. A little pricey, so I'm going to be thinking carefully before I get it, but it's kind of the right size for my computer desk. I didn't want to get a set of two speakers for my computer. It's a Bluetooth speaker I could bring other places, but it's small enough to sit on my desk, but big enough to have big sound in other places. The other thing I learned recently about the all of the different booms, there's a wonder boom, there's a boom, there's a mega boom, there's an epic boom and a hyper boom. I don't know where they're going to go after that in terms of the boom. But you, if you buy multiple ones of them, you can connect them together. So you actually could set up a kind of a poor person's uh, uh, home audio by having speakers in uh, different parts of the house and connecting them all together via some type of Bluetooth or Wi-Fi connection. So uh, I'm very happy with my speaker so far, and I'm going to be trying out the epic boom soon. Dennis. Two things. One, I have a hard time imagining like what is pricey for you on speakers. And then this the second thing is, is there a betting line out there on the over-under on how many speakers are actually in your house at the moment? U usable speakers or speakers in storage? <laughs> because the line would be different there. So okay. So I am returning to AI in, in a new way. And so I, I spent the whole summer experimenting with uh, chat GPT and generative AI in a lot of different ways. And I went back and forth on whether to keep it to myself or just to open source it all and put it out into the world. And I recently came down on the side of just putting it out there. So I have a new white paper I did that's about using prompts to create a set of personas that you put into groups to 
so that the groups interact, or the personas in the group interact almost as a mastermind group or an advisory board, and then actually make recommendations and advice to you. And it's uh, it's done through prompting, not coding. And I have a whole white paper, like 20 pages, telling you exactly how to do that. And I've unleashed it on the world. And uh, Tom will put a link in the show notes, but you can also find it on my blog very easily. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode on the Legal Talk Network's page for the show. Uh, you can find all of our previous podcasts along with transcripts on the Legal Talk Network website. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, reach out to us on LinkedIn. We are occasionally on X slash AKA or FKA Twitter. Or remember, you can always leave us a voicemail. We love to get your voicemails to talk about during our B segment. That number is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. As always, a big thank you to the Legal Talk Network team for producing and distributing this podcast. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>